0: Hello, friends. Welcome to episode 50 of the Delgado Podcast, a show featuring academics, authors, artists, and people who challenge the way we think and help us to grow in more empathy and compassion. In this week's podcast, we're honored to learn from Dr. Ken Duckworth about his fantastic new book entitled, You Are Not Alone, The NAMI Guide to Navigating Mental Health. His book is a comprehensive guide on how to compassionately support friends, family, and loved ones their mental health journeys his book combines evidence-based research on what treatments work for different mental health issues insights from renowned clinical experts and over 130 stories from people sharing their mental health challenges along with insights from caregivers it's an all-in-one handbook that will help you grow in compassion for others with mental health challenges as well as encouragement for those of us who struggle with our own emotional pain or mental health issues. Dr. Ken Duckworth is the chief medical officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness and has been the medical director since 2003. He is also assistant professor of psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and an adjunct clinical assistant professor of health and policy management at the Boston University School of Public Health. In today's podcast, Dr. Duckworth discusses why people want to make meaning of their suffering, how the power of community and shared stories can support those with mental health challenges. He shares a story about what led him to become a psychiatrist. He talks about bringing together the top psychologists, psychiatrists, and other mental health experts for this book. He gives us some advice on how to talk with loved ones about mental health issues. He shares his own personal story of dealing with depression and how he's navigated that. He talks about ways to deal with prolonged grief and despair, and at the end of the episode, he shares the impact on spirituality on mental health. As always, you can get show notes from today's podcast, you can watch the video clips, and get links to his brand new book at my website at MikeDelgado.org. Here's our conversation. Dr. Duckworth, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I'd love to start and ask you a little bit about your brand new book and why it was really important for you to collect these first-person accounts about their own mental health journeys.
1: Thanks. It's a great question, Mike. I think we're ready. I think we're ready to hear from real people who use their names. And this was, if I had any insight in this idea, it was the insight that in my work, I have found that people want to make meaning of their heartache or suffering in order to help other people. So the traditional choice is privacy or isolation. It's kind of on one end of the spectrum. And it was easy for me to find 130 people who were happy to use their names. They volunteered, they wanted to tell their story. And I could have kept going, Mike, but sooner or later you got to publish a book. And uh, so I had a deadline. And so I stopped at 130 amazing people, 38 different states, 11 different race and ethnicities, 50 different occupations, age 16 to 100. One woman wrote that she was old as dirt. So I don't know how old she turns out to be like. It's an interesting question.
0: I'm curious about, as you were gathering this, what what was like your question that you asked? Because it's hard sometimes for people to be vulnerable.
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I asked open-ended questions. Tell me a little bit about your experience. Tell me where you're at now. Tell me a lesson that you learned from your story. I kind of gave people three places to start. And a lot of people had never discussed this publicly. And I gave them several ways to get out of the project. I'm like, you know, we're going to use your name and the state <laughs> you're from. Like, like once there's 50,000 of these, it's going to be very hard to take back. And what yeah. each person said to me was, I want to make some meaning of what I've been through. I want to help another person. So you know, as a psychiatrist, uh, which I am, you know, I'm pretty good at asking questions. Not great. I don't run a podcast yet, but you know, I think uh, open asking, open ended questions. Tell me a little bit about what you've been through, what you've experienced, when you first noticed mental health was going to be part of your life. A lot of people talked about being in fifth grade, third grade, eighth grade, younger than you might think. My journey started. You know, in fifth grade, I had a panic attack in school, and I thought, this is going to be really hard. This meaning life, not fifth grade, like I can't manage my own emotional experience. So it was a beautiful and powerful experience, Mike, to interview so many amazing people who really just want to help other people. I mean, one of the other takeaways here, altruism is alive and well. Uh, The book, the copyright is to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. All proceeds, all royalties from the book go to NAMI. So I can don't benefit from any sales, which is why I can promote it so shamelessly.
0: What were some of the the big themes that you were seeing emerge through these conversations?
1: There were big themes and there were small gems. So the big Mm. themes, I didn't really have a chapter in the book proposal called The Power of Peers. I had a chapter called The Power of Community. One of the things I learned in the mental health space, Mike, is that people are continuously teaching each other and learning from each other. Several people said when I was in the hospital, the most helpful person was the person next to me. You can imagine as a doctor, I was never taught that people in the you know day room were also therapeutic agents. And this was one of the big takeaways. I also talked to people who became peer specialists. So they use their mental health journey to help other people. I've been living with, fill in the blank, bipolar disorder, opiate addiction, uh, borderline personality disorder, post-traumatic stress. And here's what I've learned along the way. Maybe I can help you navigate this chaotic, fragmented, underfunded system.
0: It's really interesting you talk about community and how important community is, because I think that sometimes it's hard for us to even seek help to go to a psychiatrist, to go to a therapist. Like that, that takes a lot of help, a lot of work for some people to do that. Yes. Uh, It's one of the reasons I wanted to
1: use real people, Mike. Yeah. You know, and so actually there's a man named, you know, Tom Allen, there's a man named, I mean, these are real people and they're not uh, the usual typical book written by a doctor is I have the answers. I'm the doctor. All my patients are confidential to quote, protect their privacy. What's beautiful about this, Mike, is none of these people are my patients. I'm the chief medical officer of the National Alliance on Mental Illness. So I have a big platform and I flipped the whole thing on its head. Let's listen to people who've lived with this, family members who figured out how to communicate within their family, how to problem solve, how to set boundaries, how to set limits. Real people are trying to deal with these things. So that was kind of the inspiration for the book Uh, I would go to the bookstore back in the day, and I'd see 100 memoirs and 100 textbooks. And I think, isn't that funny? There's no book that it kind of integrates real people's experience, more than one. A memoir, I'm not against memoirs, one person. So my dad had bipolar disorder, and I became a psychiatrist to try to make sense of what was this thing that was so powerful that it could move a family 300 miles, but you couldn't talk about it. My dad lost his job. He was a chef boy salesman. And we're, I'm in second grade, and we're in a U-Haul driving to Michigan. And I think, I think this is connected to why when the police pulled my dad out the front door while he was screaming, and likely very much hallucinating, as I later came to understand. Family couldn't talk about it. So this is how you make a psychiatrist, Mike. Not because I love science. I'm not particularly good at science. I only applied to medical schools that didn't take calculus, right? I'm not even good at math. But what I did have is love and a sense that I was interested in helping him. So my whole equation as a doctor has been what actually helps people practically. So the word dopamine does not appear in this book. Fancy terms don't appear in this book. The whole idea is what actually helps these 130 people. Then I asked America's most famous researchers, because I believe that evidence is experience. Then I asked the best researchers in the country to answer common questions. How do you talk to a family member who doesn't want to get help? Well, I contacted William Miller who invented motivational interviewing, which is a very beautiful technique where instead of coming straight on a person, Ken, you need help. And then I say, no, I don't. It's much more subtle and it's much more about listening and finding out what does Ken want and then encouraging that. Bill Miller answers that question in the back of the book. Is my teenager just being a teenager? Or do they need a mental health evaluation? So these are all really smart people in one part of the book. So the idea is practical advice from famous researchers, the director of the National Institute of Mental Health. Why should I participate in research? How can we make better treatments, right? Let's go right to the top, right? Joshua Gordon answers that question. Judith Beck, whose father invented cognitive behavior therapy. She explains what cognitive behavior therapy is. She's the president of the Beck Institute in Philadelphia. So I was very privileged. These world-famous people all came and said, of course I'll help NAMI, especially when I told them that NAMI gets all the proceeds. I have bipolar disorder. Do I really have to take these meds forever? Well, it seems to me I should go to the king of bipolar disorder for planet Earth. And he wrote a beautiful essay explaining how hard these kind of decisions are and how thoughtful you have to be in understanding what the risks are of both the medicines and the side effects of the medicines over time, Mike. So I think the book is compassionate and gentle about this very painful and intimate area of the human experience.
0: I think it's beautiful that you've used your platform to bring in the best of the best thought leaders and doctors to address these different issues. Um, I'm curious about some of the stories that really impacted you mm-hmm. when when reading them.
1: So there's some things, Mike, that you'd never get taught as a doctor. I met a woman named Catherine from Rhode Island. Catherine was uh, living with essentially what sounds like bipolar disorder. I don't make any diagnoses. People describe what's going on. I'm not their doctor. She has a couple of young kids, and she's overwhelmed running her household. She says her dishes are piled three feet high in the kitchen. She goes to a peer support group, and a woman said two words to her that changed her life and it allowed her to raise her family. And there are two words that no psychiatrist has ever said in the history of American mental health. The word was paper plates. That through a peer group, a woman said, here's how I can't manage my life either. I'm trying to love my kids and I'm living with mental health symptoms. Dude, it's, this is the way I handle it. I don't run the kitchen, I do paper plates. And she said, those two words changed my life. I also have a woman who talked about how teaching a NAMI class called In Our Own Voice, where a person goes to a business or a hospital and tells their story. And This woman named Kimberly from Florida, uh, she was on the edge of uh, contemplating suicide. She was living out of her car. She was in her 40s. And as she said, she said, I had lost everything. And she had planned after her discharge to die by suicide. And then she said to me, someone else had another plan because I was forced by the hospital to attend the stupid In Our Own Voice program. And what she met was a person just like her who had lost everything and then had created a whole life. Kimberly is now a national peer leader and has won multiple awards for helping other people. So that these little moments of these gems that people teach each other and learn from each other, I had a father-son combination Take a class at NAMI called Family to Family. And George, the father, said, I had to learn how to let go and let my son be, even though he was quite ill. Son lives with a major uh, psychiatric condition. The son thought a little differently. The son said, do you know how when you're drowning in a boat, Ken, somebody else jumps out of the boat to help you? They're then drowning too. That was my family. And if my father learned to let go, He could trust that just maybe I could swim. So these are the kind of things that are in the book. Like that might not be helpful to one person, but there might be a family system for whom that's really helpful. Just like the story about paper plates or the peer, the power of a peer story, learning from another person. So Mike, it was a tremendous privilege. So I did this was a pandemic Zoom project. All the interviews were on Zoom. So I could talk to someone in Hawaii and someone in Texas on the same day. And then Zoom allows you to send the transcript to someone. And I'd say, Kumi, this is an incredible quote. Are you okay with this quote? Because once there's 50,000 of these, I can't take them back. Right? And then Kumi would say, oh, Ken, that's exactly what I want to say. I grew up in Japan. There's only shame about mental health in Japan. You have to be quiet and just suck it up. And I've learned not to suck it up and to talk about it. And I'm like, okay, Kumi, let's go. So that was just a good example from somebody in Hawaii. And I ran all the quotes by everybody. It was an extraordinary administrative task. But I felt like this was kind of sacred ground, right? Because people are talking about real vulnerabilities. So um, that's what I did with my pandemic project is I sensed that mental health, Mike, had gone from being a they problem to a we problem because so many of us got isolated overwhelmed, and all the media calls I got were on coping, recovery, on how to manage addiction, connection, is teletherapy real therapy? All these questions came to me, and I thought, this is the moment for this book. It's the only book I ever wanted to write, Mike. I, mm-hmm. I had this idea for 20 years, and I would sit down and write out ideas, and then I'd say, nobody's going to can I just throw it away really I did this probably 10 times over the years once in a while I'd actually write the first chapter and then I'd look at it the next day and I'm like nobody wants it. like it's very humbling right like I'm no one special I'm not Joe author I'm just a doctor who had one idea that I thought flipping it on its head that you could learn something from real people that was the joy of the project Mike and the truth it was an absolute joy and I just want to thank you for having me on your
0: show. Yeah, I, I love I love that you had this idea. Um, you actually did it during a pandemic, because um, it takes a ton of work to kind of initiate these conversations mm. and then to have them. Uh, for those listening in, when you're, you're a doctor, you hosted all these amazing conversations, but sometimes we might feel like, oh, I wanna chat with my friend, my family member about mm. something. I'm not even sure how to get into that conversation. Yeah. What advice do you have after hosting all these conversations um, on how to begin to either open up to somebody or have a, a serious conversation about It's a work? really good
1: question, Mike, and I think it does depend. There's a woman named Karen, who's a fifth generation Latina from Austin, Texas, who told her Catholic church about her story of her daughter being hospitalized for suicidality. And she told me that when she shared her story... Everyone at church wanted to walk through the door that she had opened. Again, this is her experience. She opened the door, right? And she wrote an essay with her daughter for the Catholic church newspaper. And she said, so many people came to her. So that's one way to do it. I'm not recommending that everyone do that. You share your own experience or vulnerability. And she says, almost everyone wants to walk through that door. You know, if a person hasn't sought help before, I would take a look at what Bill Miller said about motivational interviewing. How gentle you should be with people. Mm. Uh, Listen to them. If they're having trouble with sleep, but you think they might be depressed, you know the person. They may or may not take well to you saying, I think you're depressed and you need help. They may do better with focusing on the sleep and how could we get an assessment for your sleep? Sleep is sometimes correlated with anxiety, with depression, with mania, but it's not always. Some people just have bad sleep. So I also wouldn't assume that everything is a mental health condition, right? And so you use your loving connection with a person to advance them into talking to their primary care doctor to critically look in at their own thoughts. Another moment that I saw in this book, which was very beautiful, is people discuss their family history. There's a woman named Nikki who lives in Illinois. She felt very out of control for several years. Hospitalized, really had trouble. Early early 20s. Her mother sits her down and says, Nikki, I need to tell you something. What's that? Your uncle had bipolar disorder. Your grandmother had bipolar disorder. I'm beginning to think that the pattern of behavior that you have and the mood intensity that you have means that you might have a risk for this. Maybe that's what's going on. And Nikki said, it was one of the greatest days of my life because I realized that I wasn't out of control. There was a genetic risk in my family and it was a problem I could solve. So every situation is unique, Mike. But I think those are a couple of examples of ways that you can approach it, sharing your own experience, open things up for others. Bill Miller, if you don't have your own experience, but you want to engage with someone, kind of the gentle use of the middle of the Venn diagram. What you see and the person you care about both see. In my example, sleep problems. And, uh, and then you heard the third example. So these are three different strategies. Talking about your family history is relevant for a lot of people. A lot of us have mental health stuff in our family. Um, you know, my dad you know, had very bad bipolar disorder. And when I took antidepressants, I had a grief depression after my brother died. I lost both of my siblings, uh, and I'm the last one left in my family. And uh, when I took an antidepressant and went back to psychotherapy, because my buddies were like, Kent, you're really off your game, big time, dude. And I wasn't getting out of bed. I couldn't even notice it myself, Mike. It's very sneaky. These mental health things are sneaky, because you think, I'm a freaking psychiatrist. (laughs) I study this for a living. I'm on the faculty at the Harvard Medical School. The truth is, I'm just a person with my own perception and blinders. And my wife said to me, you know, you're no fun anymore. And I said, what do you mean? I'm big fun. She said, you have no sense of humor. You're defining human quality as your playfulness. And it is true that I wasn't really attending to work. I was sleeping too long, I was having trouble. But because I had a family history of bipolar disorder, my dad was really manic and psychotic. When I took an antidepressant, I watched it like a hawk. Because my greatest fear was having a depression flipped into mania. We don't know how these genes work, Mike. We don't know. But we knew, know that I was at an added risk because of my very strong family history. For reasons that I can't explain, I didn't have that. The meds helped me get back on my feet. I'm still grieving my brother and sister every single day. It's like a life with them and then a life without them, really. It's like two chapters in a book. But when I went to my brother's funeral, the man who runs the family, Gravesite said, Ken, you'll be right there, right between Joe and Sue. And I thought, you know, I'm going to write that book because I'm going to be here in no time under this beautiful tree in Cape May, New Jersey. I'm going to be under this tree. And there's a story to tell. And I want to tell it. My dad was a real person, a good person, loving, gentle, funny, and with an illness that society was afraid to talk about. So that was kind of my motivation. Literally, I was driving back from her putting his ashes into the ground and I said to Kelly you know I'm going to try that book it's probably not going to work like my other 15 attempts but (laughs) what the heck I feel like I should try it because I think my family learned something about how strong love could be even if you were filled with shame and uh, of course I now interviewed all these other people who figured out so many more things than I had but that's so that's how family history is germane to the conversation, Mike.
0: And I love how you mentioned, you know, going back to community, like you had your friends giving you input about your own mood and their concern for you. Your wife is giving you input Yeah. and you're a doctor, you know, but then you're and you're like self-aware, but then you're not even not realizing that,
1: not that good. Like I was normalizing my experience. Mm. You know, my battery was on E, I didn't want to get out of bed. Uh, I was doing uh, phone calls for work. I would say my name and immediately stop paying attention. Like, how do you get three days bereavement? Are you kidding me? Mm-hmm. I mean, these were my people and they were really gone. And um, so I really struggled. But the feedback, the good news is I love the people in my life. And so I didn't get defensive. Like I knew these conditions are treatable. Do you know what I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, do you really think So I go out to dinner once a month with these guys. They all happen to be psychiatrists. It's hilarious. You know, and these these guys looked at me like, dude, you are in trouble. And I'm like, no, I'm not in trouble. I just really said, no, Ken, look at the way you're walking. You're not even lifting Mm. your feet. And so I said, you know, I'm probably going to break down and go see a psychiatrist. So I went to my friendly neighborhood psychiatrist who I helped to train many years before He did not give me a discount. I want to make that clear. (laughs) He charged me full freight, dude. But he was thoughtful and compassionate and said, okay, I hear you have a family history of bipolar disorder. I see that you have some grief-depression thing. That's a whole other discussion, Mike. The American Psychiatric Association can't really differentiate grief from depression. Mm -hmm. If you looked at my situation in the 80s and the 2000s and today, you would have had different diagnoses. What is grief and what is depression? I think these are almost existential questions that are kind of too big for the field. So they just invented prolonged grief disorder, right? So, you know, if you're still in deep despair a year after, that's their definition. Is that a mental health condition? Well, I'm still in despair. I just wrote the book to honor my siblings. So I was functional. I'm off antidepressants. I still see my therapist. I still see my boys once a month. Kelly thinks I'm fun again, but I wouldn't say my grief is at all healed, really. I've just managed to channel it. Like, this book is really for my family of origin.
0: For those listening in who may be in a, in a period of grief or depression, you've talked about things you've done to channel that and actually create an amazing book through this experience. Um, what would be your counsel Um Uh, for them who are right now in the midst of grief. Mm.
1: I can't say I'm an expert on grief. Allow people to love you. Don't throw away the cards you get in the mail. People text you and say, Ken, how are you doing? And you're like overwhelmed with tears. You don't want to talk to them. But a stack of 100 sympathy cards, so old school. Hang on to those cards. I still have those cards, Mike. I still look at those cards on a Mm. hard day. Like Joe's birthday or my birthday when I don't hear from Joe or Sue. Mm. Like those days are brutal for me. So I have this huge stack of cards and I can do it on my pace. Joining a grief support group can work. I think there's other strategies. I actually think I needed medicine and psychotherapy. So I went a professional route, right, which maybe not everyone would do. But I thought, you know, I'm not functioning and I'm really, you know, despairing. I wasn't suicidal but I was despairing I just didn't see a life I've also made friends with my siblings children and I had formed relationships with them it's completely different none of them know how to make fun of my parents because they weren't there like they don't get the inside jokes but they remind me of my siblings and we're friends mm-hmm. and they scare and I'll say do you know your mother told me you know When we were at a Michigan football game, your mother told me the following story. And they'll say, I never knew that story about my mom. So I try to find these little threads of continuity. But um, I can't say I know anything other than grief, except when Churchill said, when you're going through hell, keep going. You know, feel it. Talk about it with people try to make meaning of it in a way the book is a way to make meaning of this loss both of my siblings but also my dad and all the secrecy that had to go along with his illness so it was kind of a therapeutic endeavor for me and i don't think i have another book in me mike this is the only book i wanted to write mm. right uh, it's interesting you know i just this is i wanted real people to share what yeah. they learned that's what i needed if i had had this book I probably wouldn't become a psychiatrist, Mike. I'd probably be a high school history teacher. You know, like I really wanted to know what helps dad, what could help our family, what could help other people. And then before I knew it, I was, you know, doing psychiatry. And I'm like, it's pretty interesting. But I'm really only interested in what helps people practically according to what they think helps them. Not a research study. Like what do they think helps? What made a difference for them?
0: Well, I love how you've... um You've taken your grief and turned it into this beautiful book—a mm. collection of stories of different people and how they've handled their own grief, depression, or other distress that they've gone yeah. through—and then you connecting them with other great doctors and yeah. thought leaders. Right? That—that that, what a beautiful idea!
1: Thank you, Mike. I was shocked when five publishers were interested in my book. So again, this is an idea I'd be sketching out on the back of envelopes over the years, and I think, nah, nobody's going to want it. You know, like, I just didn't think it was going to work. And then when the pandemic happened, it was terrible for so many reasons. But the silver lining is we began to see mental health as something we could talk about. And so all these publishers were interested in my book. And I'm like, dude, I have gray hair. I'm not a kid. I've never written a book. I have a half a dozen drafts that I've thrown in the trash over the years. They didn't care. They're like real people telling stories. Mike, have you ever heard of the Humans of New York book or blog? Yes. I They're love that They were extremely interested in that. And the woman who purchased the book said, this is like Humans of New York meets mental health recovery. And I said, that's mm. exactly what this is. In my generation, Studs Terkel was a writer who interviewed real people and they talked about their lives, their jobs, not their mental health. So this is Humans of New York for mental health. Real people, real stories.
0: Yeah, that's, that's beautiful. Well, Dr. Duckworth, I want to thank you so much for coming on the podcast, uh, talking about your book. Uh, what, a, what a beautiful project you've created for us. It's a mm-hmm. gift. Um, so thank you. It's going to help so many people. Um, I'm excited to like go through it in more detail. Mm-hmm. I think it's going to be like a Bible for me to keep going back yeah. to, to look at different you men- topics. You mentioned
1: the Bible. A lot of people needed faith to get them through these things. Some people really wanted to integrate mental health into their church experience, All I did was listen to people. And I had a man who was addicted uh, to opiates very badly. And he said, I'd failed everything. And a man said to him, you haven't Mm -hmm. tried God. You haven't tried faith. And that was the thing that saved Danny's life. Mm -hmm. And he said, the reason I want to be in your book is I want people to hear this. And what I did is I really chronicled whatever helped people. Some people felt very shamed in their church around having a mental health vulnerability. And they made it a point to integrate it into the church. They would meet with the pastor, the minister, the rabbi, whatever it was, and say, listen, I'm part of God's people. You know, I have a mental health condition. We should be able to allow that. You shouldn't have to just pray it away, which some person told me they were told they had to pray it away. And so Mm. to me, I was just very interested, and I know this is not a core interest of yours, and I just wanted to make sure you knew. Many people, this is an alive element of their lives for them their spiritual quest and how it was at times very therapeutic. So I wanted to make sure I mentioned that on your podcast. I've listened to some of your other episodes and I just wanted to make sure that, you know, we touched upon that you'll find it in the book. Like when you read the book, you'll see it. And that was really important to some people, not to others. And I just thought it was really valuable to learn from that. And I wanted to share it with your listeners
0: beautiful. Well, I can't wait to dig into that section on the way that spirituality impacts mental health. Um, I, I can't wait to like dig into that. So mm-hmm. Dr. Arthur, Dr. Duckworth, I want to thank you so much for your time, for coming on the podcast. Um, and can't wait to promote your book and get this out.
1: I hope it becomes the Bible of mental health. Those were your words, Mike. Yes. That's my goal. <laughs> all the prophets, uh, all the royalties go to the National Alliance on Mental Illness. This is very much a pay-it-forward project. This is a book you can read cover to cover, but you can also come back to it. If someone in your life has a co-occurring addiction or suffers a trauma or is trying to find meaning in their suffering, And this is where the spirituality and faith comes in. Why did this happen to me? And this is how faith can become an element. So uh, I really look forward to your response Uh, to this, Mike. And I just want to thank you again for the podcast that you do. I enjoyed the episodes that I listened to. And I also just wanted to thank you for having me on this. I think mental health is a really important topic and I'm delighted you picked up on it. Cool.
0: Thank you so much. Dr. Dr. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Delgado podcast. As always, you can get the show notes, video links, and resources mentioned in this episode on my blog at MikeDelgado.org. You can also get updates to new shows and get access to the full archive of past shows by following the Delgado podcast on YouTube, Instagram, Twitter, and TikTok. And if you ever have suggestions for future topics or guests you want to hear from on this show, please reach out. My email is delgado at ucla.edu. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll chat more next time.